and welcome to the African Tech Roundup, episode 47 for the week ending Monday, March 7th, 2016. This is where we round up the week's most important tech, digital and innovation news from across the African continent. My name is Andile Masugu and alas, Devo Mahapi is away again this week, but we do have a jam-packed show you can look forward to. I'm especially excited that joining me a little later on to unpack all the biggest news to come out of the Mobile World Congress 2016 that wrapped just over a week ago is Stuff Magazine South Africa editor Craig Wilson. Stick around for that. Otherwise, if you're listening in for the first time, head over to africantechroundup.com to catch up on all our previous episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram for useful news updates and highly opinionated commentary. Our handle on both platforms is at African Roundup. On Facebook, you'll find us at facebook.com forward slash African Tech Roundup. But before we get this show properly on the road, this episode of the African Tech Roundup is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com forward slash African Tech with over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, or MP3 player. Sign up right away or at least as soon as this podcast is over by getting a great book on how technology is changing the world's sociological landscape called Here Comes Everybody, The Power of Organizing Without Organizations by Clay Shirky. Just click through to audibletrial.com forward slash African Tech for your free audiobook. So last week, I was lucky enough to hang with two interesting African-American entrepreneurs who are in South Africa on business. Uh, Talib Graves Mans is the entrepreneur in residence with Google for Entrepreneurs and Code 2040 at the American Underground in Durham, North Carolina. Now, Talib is also the co-founder of three startups, Rainbow Me Kids, Point AB and Life on Autopilot. Now, here's Talib telling me what he reckons sets Code 2040 apart from other initiatives set up to create access, awareness, and opportunities for top black and Latina engineering talent to ensure their leadership in the innovation economy. Take a listen. The way Code 2040 built a network, right? We call it a family of people. So right now you have, you have um, two groups of people. You have the student talent, the computer science student talent, right, that goes through the program and they go into the valley and they develop networks there, right? And then you have the entrepreneurs, right? So just the um, just four months ago, I was doing a crowdfunding campaign for one of the startups I was working on called Rainbow Me, which is about increasing diversity in kids' entertainment, right? Um, we were going to do a crowdfunding campaign. I'm in the valley for a meeting, right? And because of the network of Code 2040 through the fellows program, I meet a young man who just got finished doing an internship at Indiegogo, right? A Latino young man who's part of our network, of our family. And when I told him I'm working on doing a crowdfunding campaign and I want to raise $35,000, he says, all right, I'm going to plug you into the network of the people at the organization that will help me get it done, right? That network effect is very valuable, even more valuable than the $40,000 because what we have is limited access, um, to the resources of people and the network effect, which I think is pivotal in being able to grow any venture, whether that's technology or not. Uh, we have over approximately 100 um, fellows who have graduated the program that are currently working in roles, and I can pick up a phone or send a WhatsApp or a text message to those people, and they're going to open up their Rolodex to me, and I'm going to do the same for them. 
Jordan Jack is the other African-American entrepreneur I chatted with. He's an aerospace engineer and a celebrated commercial airline pilot for a leading global carrier. He's also had a long stint working in investment banking, and currently he's leveraging all his technical training, professional experience, and impressive network into launching various ventures in new media and international property investments. Now, here's what he had to say when I asked him what he makes of the crazy valuations of Silicon Valley tech startups, many of which are yet to demonstrate any substantial revenue new potential never mind profitability i'll take a listen to this what it is you do have some companies that are receiving uh, a pass let's say early on in their development being valued in in the uber example at higher levels than let's say a fedex a company like fedex who's a large shipping company and airline that has been around since 1978 whereas uber only five years old has a higher valuation and 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 we don't understand the model yet and and can't see let's say the viability and the revenue uh what i'll say about that is this um the these models that we're seeing like an amazon for example are are strikingly different than traditional companies and models so the revenue models that you you're going to see are also going to be be different so you may see a lag in revenue but i guarantee you that the innovation that surrounds the product is the innate value in those companies, and that is actually where the investors, where the shareholders, are bent, are are basically banking. They're banking on the innovation itself because it it could be, for example, in the Uber example, in the WhatsApp example, that eventually you have those traditional companies that that will want to and that already have started to integrate these models into their own ecosystems. For example, businesses now directly uh, having accounts with an Uber, as just as, as an example. Now, if you were early on as an investor, and that wasn't even a possibility at the time, but the let's say the, the founders were able to, to basically sell you on the fact that where we are now is very much different than where we'll be in 10 years. And this technology that we own, okay, is basically the only technology like it that exists on the planet. And we're already in markets that are multinational. So in the same instance, like my company, my group, Axiom, like Talib's uh, company, Life on Autopilot, what we're doing is essentially kind of breaking down borders in terms of being multinational startups. And the ones that you're mentioning are multinational startups. So they're encountering different challenges than a traditional company would because traditional companies don't start out as a multinational. So revenue models will be different than what uh, we've we've been used to. In summary, I'll say that is a kind of an evolution in terms of the startup culture, and I think we're at the we are it's it's a great time for us for our society and our and our uh, generation because it means that uh, people young people who have ideas don't have to be disheartened or distracted or dissuaded from actually carrying out that idea because they see revenue is not the only benchmark that we're looking at anymore. We're looking at innovation. We're looking at can your product, you know, change change someone's lives? Can everyone be a part of it? You know, like, you know, the revenue is going to come. Uh, so you have to, I think you have to be patient and I think you have to be, you know, ahead in terms of innovation. I certainly enjoyed trading notes with Talib and Brian. A big thank you to them. Uh, find our full conversation at soundcloud.com. Just search for African Tech Roundup once you're there. Or you can find the link at africantechroundup.com in the blog post for this very episode. And that's episode 47.
Now we have some exciting news this week. We're pleased to be partnering with Nest VC to bring you an exciting event called What's Next Fintech. Uh, what is that I hear you ask? Well, how about I let managing partner for Africa at Nest VC, Aaron Fu, give you the low low. What's Next is a series that we started seven months ago. Each month we look at a different sector. Uh, we've done financial technology, we've done agri-tech, we've done fashion, um, and we bring together a whole panel of government, startups, corporates, academics, researchers, to really ask them what they feel is going to come up next in that particular sector. So it's always very exciting when a very different group of people come together uh, to explore a particular vertical. That's right. On Monday evening, March the 14th, 2016, do join us at the What's Next Forum on Finance and Technology in Rosebank, Johannesburg at Standard Bank's Incubator. The lineup includes Elizabeth Rosiello, who's the CEO and founder of Bytes, Sichabanguenya, CEO and founder of Creditable, and Geraldine Mitchley, uh, who's Senior Director of Strategic Partnerships and Emerging Payments at Visa, just to name some. Registration is absolutely free. And for more information, head to our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash African Tech Roundup. And you'll find all the deets you need, as well as a link to the event registration page pinned right there. Look forward to seeing you. But now it's on to the news. First up, it looks like the .Africa domain is finally going to be a thing. This after the generic top-level domain was bitterly contested by the .Connect Africa Trust. Now, this is something we've covered before. According to board resolutions that ICANN published late last week, there are, quote, no remaining avenues available to .Connect Africa Trust to proceed in the new GTLD program. Hopefully, Africa can finally move forward on this matter. We'll keep you posted to rust me on that. Well, next, uh, tech recruitment and training firm Andela has announced two key partnerships in the last week. The first with tech mentorship firm CodeMentor and the other with Big Data University, BDU. You know that the IBM initiative aimed at spreading big data literacy in Africa. Now, the second partnership has particularly lofty ambitions. You see, BDU aims to launch one million data scientists into the world over the next 10 years by offering courses in big data and databases. Andela is coming on board to help IBM train future data scientists and increase interest into big data among the tech community. Now, we can't hate. Andela can't seem to do much wrong at the moment. Proper stuff, guys. We'll be keeping a close eye on how this particular partnership unfolds. Well, the prize for the biggest VC deal of the week goes to the Africa Internet Group, AIG. And they're the parent company of one of Africa's most prominent e-commerce businesses, Jumia. Now, they've secured more than 300 million euro in funding from new and existing investors, including the previously announced funding commitment from the global insurer and asset manager, AXA. This round of investments has roped in predictable entities like MTN and Rocket Internet, as well as a new investor, Goldman Sachs, that uh, wants in on the action, clearly. And... Um, yeah, there's no doubt that action is being led by the poster child for, for the success of AIG, uh, which is, of course, widely considered to be Jumia. Now, we noted with interest a tweet put out by Mark Zislowski, um, a.k.a. Chinadu, uh, put out last week, um, challenging tech journalists not to be lazy in reporting the AIG deal and um, challenging us all to look under the hood and and see what's truly under there. Look, I can't help feeling, though, that uh, as one who's fallen out of the good graces of the folks at uh, ro you know, Rocket Internet since leaving Jovago NG to start a competing platform, I think I'm calling sour grapes on this one. Sorry, Chinadu. Uh, let the folks celebrate the deal in peace, my guy. You can be sure that we'll be all over them to, to, to see what platforms and projects they pour that cash into. Maybe Jovago? Who knows? <laughs> Perhaps you ought to watch your back, Chinadu. <laughs> 
Well, staying with Nigeria, where Uber has come up with a clever innovation to help drivers who are interested in getting on board with them find cars that meet their exacting criteria. Now, they've launched something called Uber Marketplace, a one-stop shop for anyone looking for a car, Uber will happily on board. Now, they're partnering with the likes of car for You, who will be offering a long-term leasing deal, which includes maintenance and comprehensive insurance. And they're also partnering with car makers Hyundai, Kia, VW, and Nissan, who have put specific vehicle models on offer. I think this is pretty clever. This comes only a week after launching their motorcycle ordering service, Uber Moto, in Kenya. That was just last week. And a new Uber feature that helps you hook up seamlessly with a driver who's, you know, completing a trip nearby. That's available right here in South Africa uh, just to improve waiting time of customers and just improving customer experience in general. Hmm. Smart moves, Uber. We've spoken about what they might need to do uh, to retain uh, relevance right here on the continent. And it seems um, they're not only doing what we thought they might do, they're stepping up and innovating in areas that uh, we didn't quite expect. Uh, well done to them. Now, coming to South Africa now, just as MTN has started to recover from several months of unpleasantness, Vodacom has sustained a kick in the stomach. It's much publicized deal to buy the majority of fixed line assets held by telecoms firm Neotel is officially off due to, quote, regulatory complexities and certain conditions not being fulfilled. Allow me to translate. Uh, we've tried, but we can't find a way to work around the suspension of Neotel CEO Sunil Joshi over the pending investigation into a reportedly dodgy deal with Transnet. Oh, and then there's a small matter of Vodacom's competitors challenging the potential anti-competitive nature of letting Vodacom acquire Neotel's radio frequency spectrum for their sole use. That probably sums it up. Now, Vodacom CEO Shamil Jusab has said in a statement that uh, he's disappointed. And no doubt um, their shareholders are too. It would have been an excellent acquisition uh, from a strategic point of view. Now it remains to be seen what will happen to Neotel going forward. Uh, whatever future they have will not be involving Vodacom. That we can know for sure. And that about does it in terms of the week's biggest news. As I announced at the top of the show, and as we promised in last week's episode, I caught up with good friend of the show, Craig Wilson, to give us a detailed assessment of the spectacle that was Mobile Week Congress 2016, which went down in Barcelona just over a week ago. Take a listen. Craig Wilson, editor of Stuff Magazine South Africa. Thank you so much for being here, man. It's only a pleasure, always a delight. Man, you've been sick, man. What did they do to you in, in, in Spain? Yeah, I think it was the transit back through Switzerland and one degree and, uh, you know, 400 other people's air on the plane for too long. But uh, uh, I'm feeling, feeling fat and fit. <laughs> That'll do it. <laughs> so listen, uh, you sent us a clip from Barcelona last week. We've got a sense of some of the things you were excited about at, at that point, right? And we could hear things in the background. You're on the streets. It sounded really exciting. What was the vibe? So, I mean, Barcelona during this sort of event every year is completely and utterly insane. Uh, you can't find a hotel anywhere. There are just tens and tens of thousands of people. Uh, the streets are packed. And this year, um, the staff who sort of run the metro and the underground trains uh, went on strike. And, of course, it's the most effective time to do this. You get the most attention. But it meant that you couldn't take any trains for the first few days of the event. And there were crazy reduced services. So everyone was spilling out onto the streets. I saw people protesting, um, you know, some of the, the staff protesting. Uh, they wanted wage hikes and this kind of thing. But it really just meant it was absolute chaos in Bedlam because you were sat in traffic for at least an hour any time you went anywhere. You know, I was going to ask you about that because it sounded like a soccer match in the background while you were speaking, you know, reporting uh, for, for the show last week. 
Well, this is it. I mean, there were just sort of hundreds of people uh, chanting in uh, Catalan or Spanish. I, I couldn't couldn't tell. Um, but yeah, lots of lots of noise and lots of bluster. And it's kind of a strange town because when you go there for this, the cab drivers, for example, all pretty much all except one I had while I was there refused to speak English. It's not that they don't speak English. They just choose not to. And they make it a very, very difficult. And so not having the public transport working makes it a, a somewhat less sort of efficient and uh, pleasant experience than usual. But still, uh, we're not there for the, uh, for the transport. We're there to see uh, what the tech had to offer. And of course, there was lots there. The tech hubs of the world are probably listening right now going, hmm, we're still getting that event coming to our town very soon. So they've got the contract, I believe, till 2020. So um, thereafter, it may go somewhere else. But the problem is it's gotten so huge that you can't just have it anywhere. You know, it's a bit like CES in Vegas. It's gotten to the point that, I mean, I got the, the closing mails from Mobile World Congress to say thanks very much for coming. They said that they had 101,000 people through the doors over the four days. And, you know, I mean, when you look at the, it's sort of spread over eight enormous halls. If you imagine Imagine something like Gallagher Estate or the Cape Town International Convention Center. It's something like that if you times it by a dozen. You know, to walk from one end to the other, if you don't stop, if you just walk from one hall to the other, takes 35 to 40 minutes. I mean, it is the hugest mobile trade show in the world, and you can't just put it anywhere. So we'll see what happens in 2020. But um, uh, this year was, was interesting. I thought it, though, and we'll get to this, of course, that it was a bit less interesting than last year. Let's get to that. You know, you've set the scene, the vibe, uh, the, import of the, the importance of this event, because you get events like this in other parts of the world. But I'm getting a sense that this is essentially the World Cup of, of mobile. And, and so what do you think? Let's start with what came out totally ahead of everything else in terms of a trend that everyone went, whoa, we'll never forget Mobile World Congress 2016 because of that innovation. So, I mean, this year was all about virtual reality. That was the focus. And it's funny because last year was all about wearables, right? It was all about smartwatches, fitness trackers, that kind of thing. This year, there were some new ones, but they were really, really a small focus. And it's funny how quickly the focus can shift. You know, in just a year, wearables went from being the biggest news to being, oh, you know, just another sort of item that people are updating. Virtual reality was what everybody wanted to talk about. So you had LG releasing their quite budget sort of VR headset. Instead of going the Samsung route where you clip your phone in to use it as the display, this is actually a headset with the display built in. It's not terribly high res. It's not, you know, very high end. But um, it gives you a taste, and it's quite quite an effective, and I, I suspect it's going to be quite a cheap version, uh, just to get you sort of interested, and, and just to give you a basic experience of it. Then, of course, in the sort of mid-range, you've got the Samsung Gear VR, which is their headset that their um, all of their top-end smartphones click into. And that's just the sort of next notch up, right? It's a little bit slicker. The experience is a bit nicer. Um, and what you get, uh, you know, the package is just a little bit better. Um, those sell here. You can get them in South Africa already. They're about 2,000 Rand. And if you order the new S7 or S7 Edge from Samsung and you pre-order it before release date, you'll get one of those headsets free. So they were pushing that very hard as well. But then, you know, you keep going up the list and you get the sort of Oculus Rifts and then you get the HTC Vive. And that was undoubtedly the sort of most hyped, most exciting product to come out of this year. Now, it didn't come out this year. We already knew about it. It had already been talked about. But this was the first real opportunity to play with a finished consumer ready version of the product. Now, it's going to go on sale in the next couple of months. And it's going to cost about $800, which given our current exchange rate is going to hurt. 
but um, it's a really interesting experience. So this is a full-on VR headset, uh, you know, sits over your head, has to plug into a very high-spec sort of gaming machine, which they also don't mention. You know, aside from spending, say, 20 grand on the, the headset and the, the controllers, you're going to need a, a really, really beastly desktop computer to run this thing. But it allows you to, it's, it's got its own sensors and cameras on the outside, so it can sort of map the space around you and um, create sort of worlds accordingly. So it gives you the most immersive sort of VR experience that I think anyone's really seen yet. Um, and to have it bundled in this consumer package was, was really exciting. I'm going to ask you a very simple question. People all over the world listening to this podcast are thinking, why should we care? Why should we go on this trip with all these tech makers and their, fasc- their current fascination with VR? What, what is the impact in real terms for the average consumer? Let's start with you and I sitting here. Aside from the awe and wonder of just you know, visiting worlds that we're not actually in. So I think that's it. I mean, for, for, for most people at the moment, this is just pure novelty, right? It's, it's a gimmicky thing. You go, oh, you know, wow. So I can see these sort of places that are, um, you know, foreign to me, or I've seen, a, I got an ad this week from one of the, um, one of the local travel agencies who are trying to use VR headsets to promote locations. So, you know, things like the after school student Kuntiki saying like, here, we'll show you, you know, what it looks like at the Parthenon and, you know, some of the sort of spots that you might want to stop on a European tour. But this is the thing. For the most part, it's still very gimmicky. And I think they've got a long way to go before we find the really practical implications of this, you know, things like, or implementations of this rather, you know, things like training, education, um, um, simulations, you know, like if you've ever been in one of those, those airplane simulations that they use to train pilots, I mean, that is this huge, you know, this huge specialist piece of gear, you know, it looks like a sort of container on a, on a, on a big arm. Um, like, I think the potential to cut down the expenses on that kind of thing uh, are fantastic. Like, say, for example, you, um, you mixed virtual reality and augmented reality, and you are doing a, a cross-Africa motorcycle trip, and you break down somewhere, and uh, the mechanic can download a, you know, um, a, a sort of manual for your bike specifically, and then get video overlays over your actual bike to say, right, you know, twist this, remove this piece here, uh, look at this, you know, check that it looks like this. I think those kinds of things are really exciting. I'm actually, you just gave me an excellent idea. I can imagine sort of being uh, on a on an expedition somewhere, I get stuck, I break my leg, or I need to operate on my on my own belly or something, and I've got this VR machine right in the middle of the mountain somehow and plugged in somehow, and they send me everything I need to know about how to operate on my own liver or something. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I think the healthcare stuff is amazing as well, or in war zones, you know, unusual things that happen and that, you know, you've got people with... I think it's it's great for people who have some skill already, say like doctors in far flung regions, who you know have some basic medical skills, but may need to perform a very specific procedure that they haven't necessarily done. I think it's things like that where VR has huge possibilities. But until then, in the meantime, really, what we're looking at is it's a it's a luxury and it's a it's a glorified sort of toy um, for those people who can afford to and who are interested. I mean, it is fascinating. It is great that it's changing the way it's going to change the way we you know, game and, um, and I think also for, for rehabilitation, you know, for training, uh, for people who've had accidents or strokes or this kind of thing. I think there's a lot of potential there, but we've got a long way to go. And I guess what they're hoping to see is that gaming and the other motivators will help bring down the price and will help, uh, encourage more people to, to fool around with it and to find some of those really compelling use cases. 
I do sense though some of these brands are using VR as a, a way to sort of flex their muscles and give the world a sense of we're ahead of the curve. It, how much of it is a lot of it must be PR, surely, just to just to give people a sense that our brand's relevant and we know what we're doing. Um, if we can make something this awesome, you ought to buy our smartphone. There's a great deal of that, and I think um, I think LG in particular. Let's we'll talk about their products quickly. Just so you know, Mobile World actually runs Monday to Thursday, but every every year the Sunday has some of its uh, the announcements ahead of time. Now, last year it was all about Samsung. It was all about their uh, S6 and S6 Edge. This year, LG very cheekily arranged their event a few hours before Samsung's and tried to sort of steal their thunder. And what they unveiled was their new flagship called the G5. We knew that was coming. Uh, you know, the rumors. That's the other thing about these conferences. Before you go to them, you pretty much know most of the products that's coming out anyway, because nobody can keep a secret in this business anymore. So LG's even Apple. Uh, well, Apple just doesn't show up. Ah. Apple doesn't bother with conferences like Mobile World or CES. They just refuse and say, no, we don't even need to be there. Um, which is sure. Yeah, I mean that's sort of typical Apple for you. But anyway, LG's phone. What they what they tried to bill as the the big selling point was that you can clip the bottom off it, so it's got a sort of modular design. You can pull the battery out, and then you can click the battery onto other uh, sort of. Um, uh, fixtures or other uh, additional modules so you can attach like a camera grip and turn it into a more serious camera or you can attach a Bang & Olufsen amplifier so that it um, you know provides better sound but at the end of the day like I played with these things and it was very cool it was very cool because no one else was doing it but it also wasn't something that I felt oh I'm going to go out and buy this phone because I want all of these additional components and I think this is often the problem is that there's the is this huge drive to do something different and novel, but different and novel doesn't mean we're going to want to use it. You know, last year, Huawei showed off a, um, a wristband, like a wearable, that had a Bluetooth earpiece that clicked in and out of it. And sure, no one else showed off anything like it. But I thought we'd all agreed years ago that Bluetooth earpieces are completely ridiculous. You know, unless you are in your car all the time um, or you're somebody's dad, like no one, you know, I don't know anyone uh, under the age of 40 who uses a Bluetooth earpiece. You know, sure, some people will keep one in the car, but no one walks around with one anymore. That's become like a a 90s movie sort of joke. And this is the thing is that, you know, like the Huawei uh, wrist-worn earpiece or the swappable components of the LG, they're novel. But just because they're novel doesn't mean we want them. So this whole Silicon Valley uh, obsession with novelty for the sake of novelty, well, certainly (laughs) falls flat around here where we tend to buy into things because we can actually use them or they are of, of a significant value to us. And let's talk about that. What, you know, there's this huge narrative, the, the, the fact that we're um, probably the, the fastest growing, correct me if I'm wrong, the fastest growing mobile markets and, you know, corporately as, as the continent in the world. And do those sort of narratives filter to places like mobile world? And, and if they do, how are they delivered to the rest of the world? And what's the interaction? So there were some talks about emerging markets. A lot of it, though, was focusing on things like um, more efficient ways to roll out 3G, 4G. Of course, then the Europeans are also already talking about 5G. And they were talking about connectivity. And this is it, you know, how to get people connected. Mark Zuckerberg spoke at the um, Samsung S7 event um, about uh, exactly that and sort of bemoaned the fixation in the first world 
on foster and foster connectivity when he said that really what we should be looking at is getting people in emerging markets who've never had any connectivity to speak of or you know who just aren't yet online that really we should be focusing on that instead and there were there was talk around it but in terms of actual products and so on you know when you went to brands and you spoke to them the focus was very much on the top end of the market it was very hard to get anyone to say anything really concrete about the lower end i mean even ford for example ford the motor company um, I spent a lot of time at their stand while I was there and they were showing off their Sync 3, which is their in-car sort of um, entertainment and infotainment system. And I said to them, well, you know, um, we spoke at length about it, about what had changed from the previous version, what it can do, how it's, you know, how to make, um, how it's important to have drivers uh, not be distracted on the roads uh, and this sort of thing. And we said, well, you know, when is this coming to emerging markets? They weren't sure. And so uh, I was speaking to Chase Kappers just the other day, um, the, the founder and CEO of WiseTalk, and a lot of the stuff they're doing over at WiseTalk has to do with the, the reality on the continent, which is, uh, you know, in terms of mobile, which is we still have tons of feature phone users, and that's not changing quite as quickly as people thought it would. Sure, a lot of people are, are, are taking up smartphones, and, and that's happening faster than we expected, but certainly uh, not dropping necessarily, dropping off in terms of uh, not using feature phones. And so what's your take home from everything you saw, given our reality in, in Africa around the use of feature phones still? So, the, I mean, the feature phones one is fascinating, too, because it's it's increasingly it's not a problem about the cost of smartphones, right? We're seeing tons of un, sub $100 smartphones. We're seeing smartphones that are getting so cheap, they compete with feature phone prices. I mean, even local operators like Vodacom and MTN have basic smartphones that are under, I think, 700 Rand for some of them. Um, the problem there, though, is battery life, right? There's Feature phones maintain a huge appeal in part because the good ones will last four or five days on a charge. And this is, I guess, I guess again, what a lot of people forget. You know, when electricity is irregular or difficult to come by, um, that l sort of longevity can make a huge difference to your actual experience of using a device. It's no good if your device has GPS and a camera if it's, you know, off and doesn't work for half of the week and you can only keep it running for a day and a half. So I think feature phones still have an enormous enormous place uh, and role to play in this market. Um, we see this with Alcatel as well. Now, Alcatel uh, rebranded at Mobile World. They used to be Alcatel One Touch. They've now dropped the One Touch bit. And they're still releasing, they're still really um, dedicated to releasing high-quality feature phones. We played with a couple of them, um, and they're just fantastic. And they've really understood, I think, that for emerging markets, this sort of product isn't going to go away and that there is great value in continuing to to eke out everything you can from that market segment. So it is nice to see that some people do still pay attention to it, but it's always difficult at these kinds of events because obviously, you know, it's all about the flashiest and the best and the newest and the greatest. Um, and so there is, there is, if you dig deep enough, there is some emerging market stuff, but it's, it's by no means the focus. And everyone seems a little sort of surprised when you want to talk about it. What you just said about Alcatel reminds me of what made Peugeot thrive in the 80s and 90s with their 504, the, firstly their 404 models and their 504 models, essentially um, coming to grips with what people actually needed. In fact, such a success that uh, it's rumored that it was it nearly financially ruined them because the cars were so good. They lasted so long. Uh, they were perfectly attuned to the, uh, to the climates um, they were created for. How much of the efforts around making what people need is limited or stimulated by the fact that people or these companies simply just want to make more money doing things uh, or, or basically milking markets for what they're worth? So 
that's a huge point. And that's one that came up with a lot of the people I was traveling with. We kept talking about this saying Apple, for example, you know, even Apple for a long time would have you believe that it was this independent. It uh, blazed its own trail. It did what it wanted. But that's just not the case anymore. It's got to put out a phone every September. That's what shareholders have come to expect. And frankly, I would love to see more of the the smartphone manufacturers or any of these sort of consumer electronic brands really taking a step back and saying, you know, we're not going to play this game anymore. We're not going to put out a phone every year. What we're going to do is we're going to put out a phone every two years. You know, and we're really going to make sure that when you move from, you know, whatever it is, model six to model seven, the difference is not incremental. You know, it shouldn't be a case of even with the, with the Samsungs, with the S7, the joke was that all they've really done is repaired the mistakes they made on the last one, like putting the SD card back in that people got really upset about when they removed it. Um, but, you know, the S7 looks like the S6 in the same way that the iPhones, you know, the 6S looks like the 6. I would really, really love to see people taking a step back and saying, you know, let's, let's hold off and let's, let's do really innovative stuff before we bring it to market. Because, frankly, a lot of the people I spoke to, too, are, are getting, you know, absolute sort of upgrade fatigue. I mean, I've had it myself. I've stopped. Uh, I, I can't be bothered to get the newest iPhone. There is such an incredibly broad array of mid-range Android phones available that it's becoming increasingly hard to justify, particularly in light of the exchange rate, spending 12, 14, 15,000 Rand on a phone. What's that in dollars? Well, that's it, like $1,000 a phone, right? Um, and of course, it, it shifts depending on the month. But yeah, I mean, my last iPhone, I bought a 6S, uh, a 6 Plus, you know, the big one. Uh, I bought it in, in the States and it cost me just over $1,000. And at the time, that was, say, 12, 13,000 Rand. When I had it stolen and I got a quote from, for my local insurer, the quote from the local iStore was 17 and a half. And you're just like, I mean, that's two laptops. Which, and two laptops is the beginnings of a small business. You know, I just cannot like, justify it anymore. And a lot of people I spoke to said they felt the same, that they were diminishing returns on spending this much money on a device, that a lot of them were quite happy to buy um, a Xiaomi, for example. You know, Xiaomi had a presence at the show as well. And I think they're doing really interesting things by building you know, smartphones that are both budget but feel high quality. Huawei, meanwhile, seems to have gone the other way. Huawei for a long time was billing was was billing itself as that kind of kind of company. You know, high end product, low price. Now, frankly, increasingly it feels like it's high end product, high price. You know, it's just playing in the same sort of market. Sure, they're a bit cheaper than the Samsungs and the LGs and the HTCs, but they're not that that real value proposition that someone like Xiaomi uh, offers. And I think you're going to see even you know, obviously, for the execs who have the 500, 600 rand a month contracts, who just tick it over every two years and get the newest phone, um, that, that top-end market's going to stay the same. But I think a lot of people are becoming a little more uh, sort of price sensitive and going, but am I really getting that superior an experience by paying twice as much for a device? And I think the answer is often no. What's the vibe in terms of software development, um, the app makers for, for mobile? Because it seems the focus seems to be by the, by the hardware guys. Uh, what, what was the scene there? Uh, people like WhatsApp, for example, or I don't know, Truecaller, or what sort of presence do they have at a, at a show like Mobile World uh, Congress? And what do you think they'd be looking to do while there? So some of the companies we saw are the likes of No Roaming. They're, um, they're a company that lets you use local networks when traveling so that you don't have to pay crazy roaming fees. And that's a mixture of sort of hardware and software. They, they make these soft SIM stickers that go over your, your existing SIM card and then everything else is app-based. Then there were people like Telegram, who's a WhatsApp competitor. I actually went to, they had a huge party to celebrate the sort of bridging of a hundred million uh, users. Um, one of the nights that we were there. And, um, you know, they were talking up 
messaging alternatives to WhatsApp. WhatsApp, of course, while this was all going on, um, or just afterwards, announced that they will no longer be supporting a lot of older devices from the end of the year, notably things running Android version 2 and Android version 3, um, Nokia's Symbian um, operating system. But most alarmingly, BlackBerry, and not just older like BB7 devices, but BB10 devices. So, um, I mean, that's going to be a real blow for BlackBerry. You know, even the things like the Z10 devices that aren't especially old. WhatsApp has now said, look, this is just not worth our while. And it's funny to see software companies having that much sway. Um, I mean, obviously, I mean, the, the great giant of software uh, in the day was Microsoft. And it, was, it showed us just how much clout a software company could have, um, you know, over hardware manufacturers and how much they are beholden to them. But things like WhatsApp, you know, when you think... In 2009, when WhatsApp was really getting going, BlackBerry was the de facto phone, you know, not just in, in African, uh, or Africa or India or emerging markets, but in developed markets. You know, BlackBerry was the phone to have. And here we are six, seven years later, and WhatsApp saying there are so few people using these devices, relatively speaking, obviously not in emerging markets, but globally, that they're not going to support it. So on the one hand, you worry that, well, you know, support falling away for this would be terrible, particularly for a lot of people in Africa who still rely on these devices combined with the service. But I guess uh, what could happen is services like Telegram um, or Line or uh, you know WeChat um, may jump in to, to fill that gap. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. But you know the software is absolutely integral um, and making things too that can continue to, to work on both the sort of entry-level device and the top-end device and provide, you know, perhaps not quite all of the same features, but a base experience that's indistinguishable. I guess this is the challenge for those software makers. I can't help feeling like it's a kick in the teeth of developing markets, uh, a vote towards what we discussed earlier, which is let's not try and change the world unless it helps us make money. <laughs> it's problematic for me, I think. Yeah, yeah, I find it very troubling. Um, and it's curious because it seems to go against WhatsApp, what it, to what it said that it stood for in the early days. But I guess once it's been, you know, now it's, uh, it's Facebook owned, um, perhaps the priorities have shifted somewhat. Or perhaps it's just saying this, you know, we do run a business and it's inefficient for us to, to look after more platforms than necessary. But uh, one has to wonder whether BlackBerry will now continue to fade and continue to shift its focus to Android devices like the recent proof. You know, it may be the case that by the end of the year, um, BlackBerry's focus is mostly on uh, BlackBerry hardware running Google's Android software, but we'll have to wait and see. And so what's your sense of who's dominating the scene, Android versus uh, iPhone at the moment? Who, who, who comes out of a conference like that? Of course, I, you know, Apple doesn't, I didn't even realize Apple didn't, didn't even attend Sure, such cheek. But uh, they didn't even depend. So who's winning this battle for, for the minds of men? So, I mean, certainly outside of uh, the first world markets, it's Android by, by a mile. Um, you know, it, it's funny, you go, to, you go to the US, if you go to San Francisco, or you go to New York, or you go to big European cities, um, I, I'm often surprised at just how uh, prolific the iPhone actually is. I guess because here, it remains so clearly a niche item. You know, sure, we see plenty of them, but that's because we're involved with people who work in tech, and we're involved with, you know, people who can afford these sorts of devices. But um, for, for the most part, I mean, Android is leading by far and away. And I think it, there's also been a great shift in, in how people feel about it. You know, at least the people I've spoken to, there are a lot of people I spoke to who used to be dyed in the wool Apple fans. And, and that seems to be weakening. It feels like, in some sense, like Apple's just not 
quite as slick and quite as tidy as it used to be. You know, people I know who used to run their everything on Apple are saying, well, you know, AirDrop doesn't always work. That's the sort of transfer tool, you know, between devices. Things just aren't as slick and as reliable as they used to be. Android, meanwhile, is getting better and better. I'm busy. Uh, I'm running an Android phone now as my primary device for the first time in about four years. I used to be one of those Apple folk. And I got to say, like, the experience is great. It's really easy and it doesn't make a difference anymore that I use a Mac computer and an Android phone because pretty much everything I'm using is Google anyway, right? It's all cloud-based. You know, all the documents go to Dropbox. My mail comes through Gmail. My calendar comes through Google Calendar. It just happens, you know, the, the, the end device, the hardware kind of matters less and less to me because I'm way more embedded in the software services that I've decided to use. Um, those are the ones that matter. And of course, it's in their interest to make sure they work on every platform. So uh, it's curious to see, you know, how this has sort of shifted over the years. But I do feel like Android, you know, and Apple has lost a little bit of that that shine that that made it so so terribly special. And it's in part because of this pressure to continually push out new stuff. You know, the last version of iOS claimed 180 new features. Now I'm sure most people couldn't tell you, you know, what ten of them are. And even then, how many of them are they actually using? And it feels like you know they're features for features' sake. Um, Whereas I guess the flexibility of Android and its ability to power everything from basic devices to the latest, shiniest, top-end Samsung, um, that, that you know, gives it a leg up and, and gives it a, a role in emerging markets that's not going to go away anytime soon. Well, it sounds like the democratization of, of tech that Android offers the world essentially is uh, leading to innovation that outstrips what you might uh, what you might experience having the smartest people in a room in Silicon Valley <laughs> try and fix something or try and improve something to the point where it's amazing and we all want it. So, uh, listen, what do you guys think? Uh, give us a shout on at African Roundup on uh, Instagram and Twitter. Give us a sense of which mobile trend is um, tickling your fancy at the moment. I don't know how mobile a trend VR is really because I can't imagine walking around with these massive things on our heads uh, everywhere. So perhaps perhaps that's uh, that's what tickles your fancy. Perhaps it's something less... Um, less uh, pretentious, <laughs> if I could say that. Perhaps it's something that you've used in your corner of the world, anywhere on the continent. Give us a shout and let us know what your sense is of, of our discussion. You can send us email at hello at africantechroundup.com. On Facebook, we're African Tech Roundup. And of course, you can always leave a message right on the website at africantechroundup.com. Otherwise, thank you so much for joining us on the show, joining me today on the show. Craig, uh, please keep going to Barcelona so we don't have to deal with all those gridlocks and the rest uh, absolutely an absolute pleasure and yeah uh, I look forward to chatting to you guys again soon we'll talk uh, as the year progresses and see I mean what's amazing is how quickly stuff changes so who knows what we'll be talking about in six months time right I caught that pun though how quickly stuff changes that's yeah. Craig <laughs> Craig Wilson uh, editor of course of Stuff Magazine South Africa thanks again but before we go once again today's episode of the African Tech Roundup is brought to you by Audible they're offering a free audiobook download with a free 30 day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service now this week we're recommending a book called Here Comes Everybody The Power of Organizing Without Organizations by Clay Shirky with narration by Eric Michael Summerer it's an examination of how the rapid spread of new forms of social interaction enabled by technology is changing the way humans form groups and exist within them with profound long-term economic and social effects for both good and otherwise. Get Here Comes Everybody or any other audiobook of your choice for free right now at audibletrial.com forward slash African Tech. That's audibletrial.com forward slash African Tech. 
Otherwise, that's the week's show. Be sure to listen in again next week. The next episode drops at 9 a.m. Central African time on africantechroundup.com. All things being equal, therefore we'll be back on the mic with me. But until then, it's cheers from me, Andile Masugu. Peace.